All right, Judges chapter 7. I'm going to apologize. My notes are usually like color-coded and all that stuff. We're going to get to one verse, and then I figured it's Easter. What better day to follow a little bit of a rabbit trail, okay? Uh, And those notes are handwritten, so we're going to go off script a little bit because I think there's something we need to look at the history of before we move too far forward in Judges chapter 7. Look at verse number 1 with me. Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So we're given this idea here that going into this battle, Gideon and his people are near the top of this hill and they can look down on, because it says in the valley, down on the Midianites. Remember the Midianites, the Bible has already told us through Judges chapter 6 several times, that these people are like grasshoppers. They're without number. There's a huge, just this massive, massive number of them. We are given an indication of how many people there are later on in Judges chapter 7. There's about 135,000 Midianites. How many men, we got to this last week, how many men does Gideon have right now? Before this battle starts, how many men does he have? Does anybody remember? No, 300 is what he ends up with. How, how many does he start with? Wow. Close. That's the closest. He ends up with about 32,000 people here. So he's actually got, by the way, that's halfway decent odds going into the beginning of this battle. He's got four to one odds here. That's not great. That's four Midianites for every one Israeli soldier. That's not great odds, but that's a whole lot better than they end up with later on. But we need to pause for a minute and look at the history of the Midianites. It's actually a little bit unique. I need you to go back with me. And this is where we're going to get into some handwritten notes. I literally scrolled this out on the back of last Sunday's order of service. So if it's a mess, I apologize because I can't read my own handwriting. All right. Judges chapter 25. Turn back there with me really quickly. Steal this so I don't lose my spot. Judges chapter 25. We need to look at the history of the Midianites just a little bit here. Judges 25, I'm so sorry. I told you it was going to be a mess. Genesis 25, there is a Genesis 25. I warned you, that's why I type things out, okay? It's, that's the homeschool education. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, okay? Everybody that's ever homeschooled just got offended. I'm so sorry, all two of you. All right, Genesis 25, look at verse number one. Then again, Abraham took a wife. This is after his first wife, Sarah, has died. Abraham takes a second wife here. Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bare him Zimram, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan begat Sheba, and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, and Letushim, and Leumim, and the sons of Midian, Ephah, and Epher. Why would you do that to yourself, by the way? Ephah and Epher. Uh, and Hanak and Abida and Eldea. All these are the children of Keturah. Okay? So Abraham's second wife, one of Abraham's sons, is Midian. The Midianites were half-brothers of the Israelites. We've got to let that sink in for a second. Now, I had to do a little bit of math. Okay, um, Bible math is a little bit difficult because God never actually just straight up, straight up and says, in the year 2162 BC, it says in the days of Abraham. Well, when did those start? In the days of his father. So if, th- thank God there are people that are smarter than you and I that have actually done a whole bunch of math. Abraham was born somewhere around the year 2166 BC. 
which would put it at just over 4,000 years ago. He had his son Isaac when he was how old? A hundred years old. Come on, I needn't bring candy this week, and I'm so sorry, but we got we to keep up here. Hey, Abraham's about a hundred years old, so that would put it at roughly the year 2066 B.C. Gideon's time period, where we're at with the Midianites, and this will make sense in just a minute, is just about 900 years later. So they go from Genesis 25, where they are half-brothers, to 900 years later, they are repeatedly attacking the children of Israel over and over and over again. That's a little bit odd, okay? Jump back a little further with me and go to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Keep your finger in Genesis 25. We're going to come back there in just a moment. But Genesis chapter 17, look at verse number 6. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee. And kings shall come out of thee. A lot of times when we're paying attention to the history of the children of Israel, we consider them the seed of Abraham. And we, for whatever reason, as modern day Christians, we tend to only think that the only people that are the seed of Abraham are the Jews. They're not. If you pay attention, who was Abraham's firstborn? Ishmael. Ishmael had 12 sons. Do the history, study that out. Those 12 sons are today all of the Muslim nations of Northern Africa, the Middle East going all the way into Bangladesh and India. That's, they're all there. By the way, that represents somewhere around a billion and a half people. The Jews represent about 45 million people in Israel alone. There's some scattered all over and there's people with Jewish history and genealogy all over the world. But then you have all of the sons of Keturah that we almost never consider because we kind of forgot that they're there. Why in the world, and here's, here's where this, this kind of boils down, and I've got a little more history to tie in here with the Midianites. What happened? Why did the Midianites, the Midian, the sons of Midian, Abraham's sons, why did they go from half-brothers of Isaac to attacking the children of Israel? What changed? When did it change? By the way, I cannot pinpoint a single spot in your Bible exactly where and when. I can give you some ideas, though. Is that okay? Okay, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37, where I told you we're going to do a little bit of a rabbit trail, but this trail has a bit of an end, I hope. Okay? Genesis chapter 37. Oh, no, go back to Genesis 25. Did you keep your finger in there? We're going to get to 37 in a second. Look at Genesis chapter 25. Look at verse 6. And unto the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son. Because in verse 5 it says, Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. And uh, sent them away from Isaac his son while he yet lived eastward unto the east country. Judges chapter 6, where are the Midianites coming from? The east. Okay, so same people here. Judges ch or Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, okay, and look with me at verse 28. Then there passed by Midianites merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. By the way, the Ishmaelites, that's the sons of Ishmael. The Midianites, also the sons of Abraham. The people that bought and sold Joseph were family, not just his brothers, we're talking like distant, distant cousins. By the way, generations removed at this point, but not as many generations as you would think. 
Abraham, he's the one that has Ishmael, Isaac, and the Midianites, correct? So that's one generation. Isaac had Jacob, Jacob has Joseph. We're only three generations removed. They all know each other. In our family, mom's family especially, we have a picture with me holding Paisley and Callie. My mom is there, my grandfather's there, and my great-grandfather is there. That's five generations, okay? Five. Now, not everybody gets that privilege of five generations in a single picture like that. But you realize these people live to be 120 plus years old on a pretty regular basis. There were a lot of generations tied in here. They're all related. The Midianites, the Ishmaelites, they had to have known just by looking at Joseph who he was. He's where, he, he, they had to have. They had to have. Plus, didn't they sell him to some of his brothers or buy him from some of his brothers for some money here? Some money's being exchanged. They know who, exactly who they're talking to. Could you imagine? First off, Joseph's brothers try to sell him, but the people that buy him take him to another country and then resell him are also family. That's a mess. That's a mess. Go to Exodus chapter two. I told you, we're gonna bounce around a little bit. This rabbit trail has a point, I I think. Exodus chapter two. Exodus chapter number two. Uh, And look at uh, verse 16. We're gonna read a whole portion here. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Raoul, their father, he said, how is it that you're come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter. Go back to verse 16. The priest of Midian. Moses' wife was Midianite. He's an Israelite. Weren't the Israelites commanded to only marry their own kin? Same group of people? He did. The Midianites are related directly to Abraham. He didn't break any laws here. By the way, if you pay attention through Moses' life, his own sister gets mad at his second wife who wasn't related to them. She was an Ethiopian woman, according to the Bible. They weren't mad about her, though. Why? Because she was related. So the Midianites, we've got a very deep connection here. They're directly connected in the, in the account of Joseph. They're physically directly connected to Moses, the leader of the children of Israel. Are we okay so far? Okay, this keeps going a little bit. Go to, with me, to Joshua chapter 13. Joshua chapter 13. The Midianites, for a very large portion of that chunk of scripture there, it's about a 40 to 80 year span from the time that it mentions that Moses married into that family. Jethro, his father-in-law, he's referred to as Raul in that, in that particular chapter we just read. We know his, another name he was called by was Jethro. Pops in and out of Moses' life a few more times. He's the one that gave Moses the idea that, hey, you should get, stop trying to do all of this yourself. Stop micromanaging and get some people to help you out. There's too many people here. You're gonna just stress yourself out and kill yourself doing all this work on your own. Let's get some other judges to help divvy up all of the work and gave him that idea, which by the way, stayed in place with the Israelites for generations afterwards. It was just a good form of government. That's all he brought forward. Pops in and out back and forth. And Joshua chapter number 13, let me get there and look at verse number 21. We're given another indication about these people. Joshua 13 and verse 21, and all the cities of the plain 
and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of Amorites, which reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses smote with the princes of Midian, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, which were dukes of Sihon dwelling in the country. He called on his family to help him defeat one of Israel's biggest enemies during their wilderness wandering. So, they're directly related. They're half-brothers of Isaac, Jacob, all of his kids. They actually are directly married to Moses and connected there. They help Moses defeat this huge enemy. And at some point between Joshua 13, where we're given this indication this happened during Moses' lifetime, and Judges chapter 6, they became enemies. Now granted, we got a total of 900 years of history, but the chunk of time between Moses and Gideon is not near as long. It's about 220, 250 years of history. What changed during that time? What changed? Go back with me to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. I know, we've been all over the Old Testament. I'm so sorry you had to use your Bible in Sunday school this morning. Hey, look at verse five. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. Why did Abraham give all that he had to Isaac? It was the covenant. God told Abraham explicitly, my blessing is only going to Isaac. Only. They got jealous. Jealousy leads to anger. Anger leads to hatred. And in this instance, hatred led to pillaging and murder. Why? Because anytime we follow God's will and he starts to bless us, we will end up with enemies every single time. The Midianites, you realize they're connected to Moses. They watched everything that the Israelites went through. Remember, as soon as they crossed the Red Sea, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought his wife and sons back to him. Moses, by the way, smart man. He's going up against Pharaoh. He didn't bring his family with him. Why? Because he didn't want them to get attacked in any way. That's a good husband and a good dad right there. Jethro brings them back and, hey, tell me what's going on. Tell me what's happened. And the Bible tells us he rehearsed in the ears of his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. He just goes off. God did this and God did that. And, and, and Jethro, it says, praises the Lord and offers sacrifice. Just uh, amazed at what God did for Moses there. And now, centuries later, they're repeatedly attacking, pillaging, and leaving the children of Israel in starvation. Why? They weren't included in any of God's promise. By the way, they could have chosen to. Didn't the Bible tell us throughout the story of Moses, the account of Moses, that there were strangers that chose to follow along with them? The Midianites weren't one of them. By the way, they must have been for a time, but not for long. At some point, the Midianites decided enough is enough. It could have very well been they saw the rules the Israelites had to follow. And they said, enough is enough. We're going to do what we want. And now God's going to have to utterly destroy them. Who were the Israelites supposed to destroy when they moved into the land? Everybody. But the Midianites weren't on that list. They are now. I cannot give you any more answer than that. But something changed here in these people that they went from being the sons of Abraham to attacking some of their own family members and God had to wipe them out. I don't know about you, I don't want to ever be in that position. 
ever, ever, ever. So let's go back to Judges chapter 7. These are the people Gideon's about to take out. I told you, there was a rabbit trail for a reason. We needed to know who the Midianites were. So Gideon, remember God calls Gideon the angel of the Lord. It's Jesus Christ himself comes out. We know that because the name that Gideon gives him at the end, the Lord is peace. He also accepted an offering, which a true angel would not have done, but the Lord can. Why? Because he's the only one worthy of worship. Gideon is now been called, what was Gideon's very first job that God gave him? The Bible tells us on the same night as he called him. What was he supposed to do on that very first night? Destroy dad's idols, tear down the altar of Baal, cut down the grove, build an altar and offer two bowls to the Lord himself. Everybody gets ticked off. He has to fix things within his family first and foremost. And by the way, Judges chapter seven, verse one, he's given this, he was given a nickname in Judges six, Jerubbabel. He who fought with God and won. Because that's literally what his dad said. Fine, if Baal's a God, let him defend himself. And he didn't, so the people started to follow him. And you realize that they're being called. He's got, we're gonna get into details here in just a little bit. He's got 32,000 total soldiers. They're about to go fight against 135,000 people that are related to them. This battle's bigger than we gave it credit. They're fighting with family. Anybody ever had a fight with family? I have two sisters. I'm pretty sure that was a daily occurrence. Eh? Not, not with me. I never did any of that. I lie a lot too, okay? Look at verse two. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore, now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people 20 and 2,000, and there remained 10,000. That's where, by the way, we get the 32,000, 22,000 go home. The phrase God uses in chapter two, in verse two is very, very intriguing. There are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Why? I don't want these people to think that they did it. I don't want them to think that they did it. By the way, four to one odds, you can win that. You ever paid attention to what happened with SEAL Team 6 when they broke into Osama bin Laden's thing and killed him? The odds on that, the actual odds, was about 10 to 1. That's why you don't mess with Navy SEALs. That's why you don't mess with America. Just thought I'd throw that out there. But 10 to 1 odds, they won. We can do that. 4 to 1 odds, you can win that. You can't win 400 to 1 odds or 4,000 to 1 odds. You can't. Not, not on your own. So God's saying, hey, I'm going to help you win. I already promised you're going to win, but I got to get credit for it. By the way, this isn't the only time in Scripture that something like this comes up. Go to Zechariah chapter 4. I know. Minor prophet, Old Testament, those of you that have a phone or an iPad, you're already there. Everybody else is trying to figure out how to spell Zechariah. Hey, go to Matthew, work your way a couple books backwards, okay? Zechariah chapter 4 and look at verse 6. A, another idea of the same principle that the people are too many. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of the host." Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. God doesn't care about the size of the army. 
because it doesn't matter to him. The Bible tells us he's literally got the entirety of the universe in the palm of his hand. You realize we're, we're done. He spoke and everything spun out into existence. He spoke. I speak and you fall asleep. He speaks and everything just happens. He doesn't care how big the army is. He doesn't care how big you are. He doesn't care how talented you are. He took Moses, the guy who on his own accord said he can't speak, and he spoke in front of the most powerful man in the world and then continued to speak for the next four decades to one of the largest nations on earth at the time. He does not care. Why? Because if we're willing, that's what we keep seeing over and over and over again in the book of Judges. If we're willing, God can do whatever he wants. Because it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. That's God saying that. Okay, go with me to one more place. Go to Psalm chapter 20. Psalm chapter 20. Psalm chapter 20, look at verse 7. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We don't need this huge army. We don't need all of this power. We don't need all of this show of strength because we've got the ultimate power, the ultimate show of strength on our side. The Bible says the power of his right arm. If he's got the entirety of the universe, and according to everything that we can study in science today, the universe is constantly expanding. You do realize if that is constantly expanding, that means so is God's hand. And he's got the right arm of power, and he will give that to us if we are willing. Gideon's, Gideon's about to discover that, by the way, in firsthand experience, something we can also experience. Thankfully for us, our experience with feeling God's power and God's strength isn't going up against a gigantic army in the middle of the night. Right? I'm very, very glad that he hasn't just like, you know, you know what? Before you go to church today, you need a trumpet, a pitcher, and, 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 and yeah, and a sword, and you're going to yell in the dark. It'll be great. Church is going to be... That would be weird, okay? That would be weird. But God used that to literally free his people in an absolutely amazing way. Go back with me to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. So in verse 2, God says, hey, there's too many. So Gideon... He's instructed in verse 3, Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid... Hey, if you're scared, go home now. This, I imagine, like, like an episode of Scooby-Doo. You ever notice, like, a Scooby-Doo, when, like, Shaggy and Scooby, near the beginning of the thing, they, they're always the first ones that run into the monster, and I put that in quotes because it's always, like, the banker or the mayor or, you know, some... Why is it always a grumpy old person? You ever notice that? Like, every time. It's never some, like, you know, 19-year-old kids, like, I, I hate math. It's always some grumpy old person that's, like... I don't, you could become a Scooby-Doo villain. Life goals right here, folks, okay? But Shaggy and Scooby, they run into this villain, and what's their very first thing? Somehow they jump like eight feet in the air, and their legs are still going, and they just run away. That's what's going on right here. Gideon's like, hey, anybody afraid? And they're like, yep, bye. They're gone. 22,000. More than two-thirds of his army is just like gone. Can you imagine being Gideon there for a split second? Like, oh. Okay, what are you doing, God? You do realize this is the same guy's like, hey, 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 God, I trust you, but can we do this weird experiment with this piece of wool? 
I want that to be wet and the ground to be dry. Okay, don't be mad. That was pretty cool. Can you do it again, but like backwards this time? And God's saying, hey, you've got this army. There's 32,000. That's too many. Ask him if anybody's afraid. And he does. 22,000 people leave. Gideon's jaw must have dropped here. His heart must have dropped down into the soles of his feet like, we're toast. He's now got 13 to 1 odds. No, I apologize. 130 to 1 odds. This is 135,000 people to his 10,000. But God doesn't stop there. Go to verse 4. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet too many. Now, Gideon doesn't necessarily voice his opinion here, but how many of you have an internal monologue that goes along in your day? Gideon's internal monologue must have been screaming at the top of his lungs like, ah, what? A whole bunch of Frady cats just ran home to their moms and their wives and, huh, that's too many still? The people are yet too many. Bring them down into the water and I will try them for thee there. So God's like, hey, we're going to give them a test and I'll take care of this. I'll get you the right soldiers here. I got you covered. And by the way, this becomes one of the weirdest tests in all of the Bible that's recorded for us. This is really weird. We just got done with standardized testing in our school. All, every school in the nation does some form of standardized testing. And it's a, it's a way to gauge whether or not your students are, whether or not you're actually doing your job teaching your students properly, number one, and where they rank on levels uh, state, local, national, and all that stuff to see how well they're learning. Hey, I use that because if a kid starts failing a class and I can look at that and be like, no, you're a straight A student, you're just lazy. And then their parents get mad at me because they said their kid was lazy, you know. We use that kind of stuff, but that, that's those old school tests where you just fill in little dots for like, you know, 19 hours straight. How many of you remember those and love those so much? Those were my favorite because they always got rid of homework for like three days. I enjoyed those. I, I'm not normal. It's okay. We had, we, we almost every time we do this, there's always one student that gets bored and starts like making designs out of those. You know what I'm talking about? It's like diamond patterns, like, oh. McDonald's, here you come. Yay. Um, that's the kind of testing that we're used to. God's idea of testing here is a little bit different. Hey, there's still too many. I know you got about 10,000 left. That's too many. Let's go get a drink. Okay. Look at verse four again. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So God, just, hey, I'm gonna let you know which ones are good and which ones are bad here. Verse five, so he brought down the people unto the water and the Lord said unto Gideon, everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. I've heard all kinds of mixed opinions on this particular test. There are some that, and, and rightfully, it's, it's a valid thought that those that literally bow down, the Bible uses the term bow down, drank like a dog, they put their faces right in the water, they'd make terrible soldiers because they're not aware of their surroundings, which is accurate. They're also really dumb. Who drinks water like that? Genuinely, these are grown adults. Please let that sink in for a split second. Okay, I have four daughters. 
and we've had a dog growing up all of their lives, and we have at one point or another caught all four of our daughters trying to drink out of the dog bowl. Anybody else ever experienced something of that lovely nature? It's super gross. They were also only about like 18 months to two years old, still kind of crawling, that, like that in-between between crawling and walking regularly. Adults don't do this. God's weeding out morons. Are you okay with that? I know, that's so harsh. He truly is, because... You realize out of, if we keep reading here, we're going to find out there's only 300 left. 9,700 morons went face first into the water. What in the world is wrong with these people? That, by the way, I don't care who you are or where you're from. That is not a normal way to go drink water as a grown-up. You don't go to the water fountain, plug it up, let it run, and just dunk your face in the bowl. That's not, that's not normal, folks. Which means these people had some courage. They left, they didn't leave when God said, are you fearful? There's some courage. But there also may have been some unfounded confidence in their skill set. You ever meet somebody like that? They're just, they're, they're, you just, you wish you had an ounce of their idiotic confidence. They're just so confident, even though you know they're 100% wrong and that this is going to end in absolute ruin. Gideon's got 9,700 of these guys. These are the guys that show up for a samurai convention out of their mom's basement with Mountain Dew t-shirts and Cheeto dust still on their face. Eh? These are the guys that couldn't grow a beard if they squeezed really hard all afternoon. Just, they want to be a part of this. They want to fight. These are the guys that join the Marines even though they've done three push-ups in their entire lifetime because they're tough and they played Call of Duty on Xbox. That's these guys. You realize, though, again, Gideon's like, oh, he went from 32,000, four to one odds. And look at verse seven. And the Lord said unto Gideon, by the, hand, by the 300 men that laughed, will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand. 300, technically, if you count Gideon, that's 301. But these guys, they chose to do things a little bit differently. They chose to drink like a normal smart human would. Scoop some water up, drink it. Scoop some water up, drink it. That's a normal way to take a drink. So God chose 300 logical people with some common sense. You do realize that the next portion of what we're going to get into, not uh, next Sunday, we have a special speaker in Sunday school, is that correct? So the week after that, we're going to get into Gideon's actual battle. And the battle plan God's got for him, the battle plan is insanely specific while being very, very simple. God needed people that could follow basic directions. Have you ever had to like ask somebody to help you with something and it was about four times more work explaining what you needed them to do than just doing it? I love that. I love kids. I promise. I really do. But when I've explained the exact same thing that we're going to do in class like 17 times and that one guy on the front row, what are we doing? I hate you. I hate everything about you. Just stop. You're, you're going to fail at life. You might pass this class, but McDonald's, here you come. Hey, I just, God's weeding those people out of Gideon's life because he can't, God can't work with people that can't follow basic directions. He can't. Read through your Bible. He can. What does he call the children of Israel? Stubborn and stiff-necked. Why? Because he gave them actually really basic instructions 
and they failed to follow them over and over and over again. God's about to send these 300 and counting Gideon, one men, with very, very explicit, very specific instructions that had to be followed to a T. He's got to have people that have some common sense and can follow instructions. By the way, if, if you boil it down, that's all God's ever looking for is somebody who's willing and somebody who can follow instructions. Because by the way, God's given us all the instructions. Sometimes pastor will get up and preach and I sit in the back. I don't sit in the back because I'm a backslider. I like watching people. And I watch and sometimes he'll be preaching on something and then the head either drops or just you can literally see the shoulders lock up and the neck lock up. Why? Stubborn and stiff-necked. We don't like what God has to say, even though it can be as simple as stop lying, stop gossiping, read your Bible every day, tithing's a commandment, that's my money. God's given us a whole series of simple instructions. And if we want to be like a Gideon to literally change the world of my people, which are called by my name, what are the instructions on what God's going to do for revival? Shall humble themselves, pray and seek my face. That's it. And we can't even do that sometimes because the first part is humble ourselves. That's hard to do. If we're willing, that's one thing. There were 9,700 people here willing to do what God needed, but they didn't have the common sense to get the job done. Where are you at on that list? Because we've already looked at both Zechariah and in Psalms, it doesn't matter how small. It's not by our power, it's by God's. Are we willing, number one, and do we have the sense to do it right? God's given us all the instructions. We have the entire roadmap. We have the entirety of MapQuest right here. Do you remember MapQuest before GPS existed? Hey, where somebody actually had to know how to read and get you where you were going? Well, congratulations, you have to know how to read so that you can follow where God wants you to go. We've got it all. And we're here on Sunday school because we're willing, do we have the sense enough to follow it? Do we have the sense enough to follow it? And by the way, that might include us having to fight with family. Do we have the sense enough to follow God even if we're fighting with family? It's an interesting thought. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you do for us.